Good evening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Hi, I'm Tim, and welcome to Mayus Way. It's good to see uh, Thad Cockrell making an appearance at uh, Mayus Way. I think uh, we've done his music, uh, you know, sometimes, but it's been a while, Skylar. It's good to bring him back. Um, I'm going to turn around to my buddies behind me here. And even before we do the song, Joel, I think you had an announcement for us, didn't you? Okay, if you didn't see or didn't read the weekly, there's a, an important announcement in there about the children. Um, we are going to like phase two, if you will, for making material for our program. Again, we use a Montessori-based curriculum that requires handmade material. Um, so we're going to be meeting this Saturday 
uh, at Immaculate Conception Church and their atrium, uh, which is where I work as well. And we will be making some more material. And this is simple things from prayer cards that we can use that we'll laminate and use each week when we have our prayer times to some more complicated things like making clay figures, painting, uh, things like that. So um, feel free to email me. My email, my work email is on the weekly. There's an announcement there. Um, that's the best way to contact me about this. Um, we'll start at 10 on Saturday and go till 2. Um, feel free to come anytime. You don't have to come that whole time. Just if you want to come in the morning and afternoon, there will be light snacks, and we'll start with a meditation at 10. Um, so anyone that's, anyone's welcome, parents, um, non-parents, children, um, anyone that's willing to help us make some material to use. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. And as you guys heard last week, this part of our liturgy each week is led by this crew behind me, and we are now in ordinary time. So I think we have we we are have a new uh, a new song or prayer, right? Song, I guess. All right, you guys ready to lead us? Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That was really good. Thanks a bunch. Perfect. Well, again, welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see all of you guys here in the, the summer. And um, one, of the, one of the things we say every week is that uh, Emmaus Way is a community of friends that is committed to living life together. We're committed to uh, interpreting the biblical text together, coming to the table together, and in our, our way, practicing the kingdom of God in the midst of this community. And certainly, it's always important that we're able to see each other and hear each other's voices and to hear each other's stories. And today in the dialogue, there's going to be a lot of chances for that. So I'm looking forward to that. A um, few quick announcements. Um, one, uh, and be thinking of, don't let me forget any that's important. Um, one is um, on Tuesday the 16th, so not this Tuesday, but the next Tuesday, um, Durham Can is hosting uh, probably our most important meeting of the year. We're aiming to have about 500 people present. We have uh, almost all of the city council, county commissioners, uh, police, school board, mayor, whole nine yards. This will probably be the largest array of political people, media and otherwise, uh, other than like right before a campaign. Um, but one of the things that we're doing is beginning to begin our initiatives in several critical areas, uh, how, affordable housing, um, education, jobs, a whole range of things. So um, I'm going to be doing kind of the Q&A with, uh, uh, this will be one of the more challenging elements of it uh, with the police chief in terms of checking in on uh, progressive policing, all of those things. If you're there, one of the things you'll hear is the beginning of some uh, 
visioning, dialogue, and even challenge related to affordable housing and some of the land tracts that are available. So this is a, is a really big meeting for us. And one of the things that we do at Emmaus Way, which is really different from CAN, CAN is, has more of a pastor-ocentric leadership model rather than our very community-led model. So one of the things that we do is uh, we try, we're put in a position of kind of uh, speaking for you from time to time. It's also one of those rare places where presence matters so much. So I've kind of set a big goal for us for Tuesday night. We're going to target hopefully to have 10 people from Emmaus Way. So um, my quick nose counting is we're getting toward those 10, but if you're able to be there, we would love for you to be there. One of the things that CAN does is it's a start on time and end on time type of event. So 7 o'clock it'll start. It'll be done at 8.30. Um, It's important to get there early as well because the roll call is one of the most significant parts of the political action. As you have you know, folks that are there and they hear the number of people that would come out in Durham to talk about those issues, it obviously has a significant uh, persuasive element to it. So if you're able to uh, attend that or want to hear more about it to decide whether you can go, please talk to me or Josh, I think would be the two people to connect on that. But that will be Tuesday night, and it's at St. Philip's uh, downtown, right uh, by First Pres and St. Philip's, right over there on Main Street. Uh, so anyway, that's a big Big thing coming up. Another huge thing coming up, very excited about, is the event on the 11th uh, this week, uh, Thursday night, uh, Slow Train Coming. Uh, Josh, you want to give us a quick feedback of that, or Tim? Yeah, so uh, basically the, the show will be presenting Bob Dylan's 1979 album, Slow Train Coming, uh, first in his sort of Christian period, right after he's had this conversion experience. and. Um, we'll be presenting that album in its entirety, plus uh, maybe a couple of other tunes. But come out to see people that you know from weekly uh, stuff in Mays Way, including the people in this room, plus Jeff Crawford, Mark, Krista Wells, uh, Brett Harris, all of the people that you're used to seeing will be a part of that. And uh, it starts at 8 o'clock. You can get tickets. I believe they're $10 ahead of time and $12 um, at the door uh, at the Art Center in This is such a wonderful part of our vision as a community to support artists, uh, to help artists develop platforms that that allow them to speak into our culture and uh, not just in the realms of beauty, in terms of uh, a vision for the world. Tim Carlos, what an amazing vision you had in doing this. Uh, Not only are we excited to know you, proud of you, but excited about supporting you in this. So... uh, yeah, so uh, thank you for doing that. We hope we get to do things like this often. So thank you, Tim, for your hard work and for the community of artists that you're bringing together. So uh, fantastic. Um, last thing, um, just want to be wary. I saw, I think Chelsea's in the back with kids. But I, I know um, if you're on one of our rotations or not one on our, rot- on our rotations, I know there's probably the summers are always the most challenging. And typically on Sunday nights, this is kind of like a, a big potluck every week. We have people who kind of host and greet you out front, and uh, we have people that uh, um, bring snacks. Uh, sometimes that's the same person. Uh, uh, we have children, uh, folks that work with our, our paid workers in the back. So if you're interested in being on one of those rotations, Chelsea highlighted um, the snacks and as, as a key rotation to join. 
and hosting. So, SK, thank you for that. And, uh, and you know, this is one of those nights where I walked in. It's like, the snacks must be fantastic. Because I looked in there. There's like, like 10 people holding food and 10 people getting ready to knock them down to get food. So, uh, so, uh, so thank you for, uh, for, for those of you who bring the snacks each week. We certainly have found Sunday Evening Church works really well. Uh, caffeinated. Uh, it works well with sugar. It works well with healthy snacks. It's just a good part. Of, and it's a part of our envisioning of this gathering is it is a feast every week and so it kind of sets that tone for us so uh, thank you for doing that and uh, if you're able to join that rotation we'd love to have you do that as well anything that i forgot all right well uh Skylar, thank you for being with us again, as you are so many times. Uh, as I always get excited, I get to hear the rehearsal every week, uh, and so I'm, I have, I'm excited about the music tonight, and it's in many ways going to get us into a, 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 a start of a dialogue about our community. So thank you, Skylar. Thank you. There was a captain man used to plow and sing. He loved that mule and his mule loved him. When the day got long as it does about now, I'd hear him singing to his mule
Susan takes you down to a place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her, and you know that she's half crazy. But that's why you wanna be there. And she feeds you tin oranges that come all the way from China. And just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her, she gets you on her wavelength, and she lets the You've always been a lover. And you want to travel with her, and you want to travel by, and you know that she will trust you, for you touched her perfect body. Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water, and he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower. 
Hey, you want to give me an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ. If you see somebody or you're around somebody you don't know, certainly introduce yourself, and uh, that'll help us get ready as a community to talk and listen to each other. So please stand up and greet each other. Let's start with a quick question. Um, if you have your lyrics in front of you, just curious... Um, I uh, really like that last song. And, of course, I've been thinking about what we're going to talk about tonight all week long, so I have a head start on this. But just, I, I don't know if, if you could conjure this up, but I would love a reaction of kind of what did you hear in that song, uh, Suzanne, uh, Leonard Cohen? I'll tie it in, but I'm curious what your reaction was, what you were thinking about as you sang it or listened to it.
Skyler, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. This was just a good song. No, no. That last line in each of the verses is really interesting. You know she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind. It's interesting that word perfect body. That's just that just stuck out to me. Yeah, and then the line inverts the, the second two verses. Yeah. Ben, you were gonna say something? No, I've I've been raised up with evangelicals that like the evangelicalized songs. I love the way this one throws Jesus in the middle of everything mm-hmm. all at once. And you know, there's just such a lyrical exploratory quality to this. You've got garbage and flowers and tea and oranges. And I like the idea of Jesus popping down the hat as opposed to in some of the other contexts that that we we've, we've all maybe tried to put in the time. Yeah. It seems there's something holistic and, and true about that. Yeah, nice. Uh, that was very interesting how that was the, the center verse, but not the, the, the first and the last. Well, it, it humanizes Jesus and it sort of deifies Suzanne. That's, that's something that's really stuck out to me about it, too. That he's, you know, he, Leonard Cohen refers to him as almost human. He himself is broken. You know, um, which are not, those are not usually the things we hear about Jesus. And the, it's Suzanne's perfect body that keeps getting, uh, and, his, and your perfect body that keeps getting referred to. Yeah. So um, I don't know that, that you could somehow get to this higher level through somebody that was not Jesus in a way. That was something that was interesting to me about it too. Yeah, it's interesting. Brian, you said it. What is a perfect body? And we certainly don't think of ourselves usually in those terms. And then uh, what does, uh, how do we encounter ourselves in that way? And how does the coming of Christ, whether it's in the middle of a song or in a, I don't know, Ben, maybe in a cheesy youth group film you saw. <laughs> I was laughing as you said that. I remembered all the, the, the films we showed way back in the days where you kind of knew how it was going to end. And this song is much more of an enigma than that. Absolutely. What uh, Josh, you said this to me, and I, uh, that, this resonated as well, is that um, Suzanne and I think Jesus in the song, I have only heard it once, um, are both kind of people that mess you up, that, that come into your life. And I mean, and, and you could think about this. This might even be helpful tonight is to think about that person, that friend that is a part of your life or experience that messes you up in a beautiful way that, that, you know, you don't really know how it's coming at you. You don't know how this person is coming at you. You may even be weary or wary as you think about encountering this person. And then you're like driving home going, oh my gosh, you know, they did it to me again. I'm seeing something differently. And so that was, that was a a really nice piece of this. We're going to look at a story and I'm not even sure how we're going to look at this story, meaning how long we're going to look at this story, uh, um, in terms of, uh, uh, multiple weeks or whatever, but it's a story that has messed me up this week uh, in the sense that it has so many different uh, invitations and challenges to it. Um, and I'm going to get back to it in a bit, but I'd like to start by kind of setting it out there like this song just did. It kind of put it out there for us. Would somebody read that text? It's, a, it's an interesting story of a baptism uh, in Acts chapter 8. It's 26 through 40. Uh, you got it in front of you? Somebody give me a quick read on this, if you will. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down, goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. 
Christine got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop with both of them. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotos, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thank you, Andrew. So, we'll get back to that in a minute, but that's an interesting story. And um, so looking ahead this summer, we talked a little bit about this, and one of the things we're going to try to do is um, try to um, really work hard at hearing a range of more diverse persons and positions in reading the biblical text and music and all of those things. Uh, We're looking forward to that. Um, SK and others have been really hard at work uh, interviewing already for a, uh, a, a, a another pastor in our community, uh, um, and this is one of the first times that it looks like. I mean, at this point, we're interviewing people that are not have not been a part of our community. Uh, if you think about Dan, Amy, Way, I mean, we were you know kind of knew each other. A lot of our pastors have had relationships in this community, and one of the things that that strikes me uh, about this is that we're really on the precipice of change as a community. We're on a precipice of um, we're finishing up our uh, first 10 years as, a, a, as a, a community together. And so we're moving into another decade. But in many ways, and it happens here a lot anyway, because it's given the fluid nature of Duke and UNC and Durham and other things like that, we always have people kind of coming into our community and people leaving our community. One of the things that we say often, and we really mean this, and it's been proven to be true, is that every new person that comes in this community changes it instantly because of our practice of dialogue. It's a new voice. It's a new perspective. It's a a new position. Uh, And we've worked hard these last many years to try to bring in uh, uh, people who are different from us, but as well as listen. We don't always do it perfectly, but I do get the sense 
that we are on the precipice of some fairly significant change. And um, as I'm sitting on the search committee uh, with uh, uh, five or six folks and listening to, we're excited about the people that we're meeting, um, they're going to bring new ideas. They're going to bring different positions. They're going to bring different ideas and perspectives and visions. And we're going to change. We're going to be uh, uh, at that place where we're like, okay, we're not exactly what we once were. Why are we going here? Uh, What's produced from it? Who are we as a people? And I'm really, really excited about that. Um, But one of the things I want us to remember tonight as we jump into this conversation is that there's been two impulses that have been deeply significant in the formation of our community. These are two impulses that um, you would have heard talked about if you had sat in Phil and Susan's living room uh, circa 2005 and a group of people were talking about, hey, this might be a church, what would it be like? This would be two things that we'd still hear talked about in a lead team meeting or in a staff meeting or, or around the life of our community. And we framed this in the language of hospitality. Uh, and we always have talked about this idea of hospitality uh, being two things. Uh, And this comes from Henry Nouwen's uh, amazing work. But he talked about true hospitality is a radical receiving of people, receiving people on their own terms. And then he adds to that, that true hospitality is not just receiving people, but it's a profound sense of honesty. It's being a real presence in the life of the people that you receive. And every time you receive somebody in your life, it's an encounter. It's a conflict. It's a change. It's a, what's formed in relationship puts you into a different direction. It's like uh, Suzanne and this song. There's, there's something that happens there when uh, people are lured into conversation and friendship or love with her. And so these are things that we've talked about at Emmaus Way for a long time using that language of radical hospitality. And it's interesting as we're interviewing candidates, uh, one of the questions that we're asking them, every candidate is, what do you think, what do you think radical hospitality means? What does it look like in the, the life of a community? It means that much to us. And so for us, we've tried to extrapolate that idea into this radical receiving and a, a radical sense of being honest about the world that we're in and what its needs are and how we see it. So one aspect of, of, of hospitality, the receiving part, is the formation, hopefully, of a sense of sanctuary. A profound sense of safety in this community. I know what we try to do, like last week, I was struck by this, is that it, it, I would have failed uh, biblical preaching 101 last week because we didn't start with like a clever illustration or something funny. Uh, we started with a couple of very vulnerable questions. Uh, not really a great way uh, rhetorically or oratorily to start a conversation, except that as I was preparing, I was like, We're, we've been a safe community. We've been able to listen to each other. We've been able to speak and speak vulnerably uh, to each other. So that's one of the things that has been absolutely critical for us as a community is to make this a safe space. And as I look back on the past, especially in our first couple years, two or three years, one of the things that would come out of our conversations a lot is no matter what kind of question we would ask, you would often hear people talk about 
wounding, ways that they had been wounded in their lives or wounded in their faith communities. Because one of the things we were trying to do was forge a community where it would be safe, where it would be safe to be different, where it would be safe to have different experiences and different uh, expectations for life. Um, Now, I'm going to ask a question maybe to provoke a story, a single story. And I'm not going to ask, I don't mean to ask this in a self-congratulatory way uh, at all. Uh, This is just so that we taste the importance of kind of this legacy sense of sanctuary and safety for us. Um, Could somebody, like one person here, give an example of a way that you've been made safe, either in this community or um, from people in the community? And again, I'm not asking that in a self-congratulatory way, but for us just to remember how important this is. Could somebody give me an example of that, a way that you've been made safe here or among some of the people who are here? Uh, this is my second week, um, not consecutively, but total. And uh, I've been very warmed by how warming everybody is. Um, I feel very safe here, which is why I back, so thank you. That's great here. <laughs> We get rude usually the third or fourth week, so, <laughs> especially it's usually Ben Haas, but you know, that's, uh, you know, that's his role. But that's fantastic to hear. And somebody else, how you've been maybe made safe. Sure, Joy. Well, I've been here for a year, and uh, one of the things that happened was um, Sarah and I went out for coffee. I've been here a couple times, and she was such a good listener. She gave me all kinds of information about his way, and it was just such a great bridge, and I felt very safe, like I could come in, and I could always talk to her about what anything I had questioned about, but it was just such a way, a nice transition for me. Fantastic, Joy. Yeah, Sarah is like my special envoy of safety. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that she does amazingly, amazingly well. So hold that in mind. There's this desire, and I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but a desire to create safe space here where you can come as you are, as as Henry Nouwen says, uh, sing your own songs and dance your own dances without some expectation that you need to figure out what our dance is before you start dancing. But now let's flip on the, the, the flip side of that. Besides that kind of hospitality, and some of you have been around a long time, Susan, you might, and we remember us talking about these things, like how can we do that? How can we make that happen? And a lot of us had some experiences where we were not that safe in, in, in faith community environments. On the flip side, w- one of the things that we wanted to do as well is we wanted to be people who deeply embraced kingdom mission. Um, and what we meant by that was... Um, to engage as a community in our greater community in some of the social and the structural changes that need to happen in our world, uh, largely based on Jesus's jubilee vision of justice, uh, to to build and live and be the kingdom of heaven in in this place. Um, And what we understood was that that was going to be a little bit harder because there were some barriers to that. Um, in every faith community, one of the big barriers is just being a faith community apparently has so many rules to it and so many things you got to get done that, that there's often not enough time left left around to just do anything that matters missionally or socially. So that's a problem. But we also understood that there was a critical impulse to this, that as we looked at um, the history of church 
Christianity in our own kind of tradition and our own history and our own perspective, we understood that there were times that the church itself had been deeply invested in the status quo and interest that actually opposed the jubilee mission of Jesus. I think that it'd be very fair for Jesus to look down and say, you know, I think we're getting it done except for these people who use my name. Uh, Sometimes I need to move them aside just to get some things done. And that was another impulse. We saw one as as, uh, receptivity and another as this impulse to honesty that said, we're going to look at ourselves and we're going to say, oh my goodness, what are ways where we are not invested in the kind of vision that Jesus has um, in, in the world? Now, I'm going to ask another question. I don't want this to, again, the impulse is not self-congratulatory, but I'm curious. Can you describe uh, either in this, you know, with people here or in this community specifically, the way you've been kind of maybe disturbed or even guided into some of this kind of social change, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Jesus, kingdom of God, justice work, uh, uh, building, building this world based on this community or people in it. Can you give me an example of a way that maybe you've been disturbed by something and moved to a different position? You've been forced to look at yourself and say, hey, I was going to do this, but I think we need to do that. Does that make sense? Can anybody give me an example? Sure, right. So um, I had a really rough year last year, as many of you know. I was kind of bouncing off the walls. And uh, actually, I'm not sure that I want to share this. That's okay. Yeah, you, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah SK. Um, I think becoming aware of the ways in which the justice system in our country functions and kind of the ways that um, folks in the prison population are stigmatized sort of came into my awareness and I wanted to do something but it was overwhelming to try to figure out how to enter into that conversation in a meaningful way. In this community there were people who were also interested in that and were able to form a faith team to build a relationship with um, someone violent offenders coming out of incarceration and did have family and did have contacts in this area. I just couldn't have done that by myself. It was too it was just, I didn't even know, so I needed some support, and that was just to confront my own fear um, for what that might mean, and uh, just to have a dear, dear friend um, I, I love uh, come out of that in the partner that we had, this deeply transformational brings up a lot of questions. Yeah, and what, what's beautiful about that is it, it came out of community. I mean, you guys said we ought to do this. There's people in the room who, who cared a lot about uh, uh, ex-offenders. And, uh, and we live in a world where it's kind of set up, right, where you check the box or you don't check the box. And, it, you know, if you are applying for a job, then there's people who don't have to check that box. And they have a different path. And then people who do. And, uh, and, it was, and, and, and in some ways, something that could be maybe you might have known as an abstract need became something deeply physical, real, doable. And it was doable because many of you guys, I mean, that's that's been fantastic. I think we're on our second faith team, but it was exciting to see you guys circle around and and do that. So now we've got kind of two stories out there. Um, A story of being received, 
um, and a story of being provoked into action, provoked into mission. And a lot of times it took it. If you heard the way SK told that, she told that, you heard the honesty angle. You described several ways that it would have been hard for you to do that uh, or it would have been easy to be inert, but people challenged you or gave you an opportunity to do something that you would have liked to have done but didn't feel comfortable doing alone. So hold both of those. Now here's another thing. One more story, perhaps, or a set of stories, is let's say as a community we're working as hard as we can to be radically receptive, as we say, to receive people, to create safe space, to to make it safe for um, you to be here, for you to speak in dialogue, for you to take communion with each other. We're doing that. And we're also trying to be deeply honest with the world around us and its needs and perhaps even our place in responding to those needs or our place in being a barrier to those needs being met. And, and that involves some, often some deep, honest reflection. It means we have to say things to each other like, perhaps we should care more about this. Or perhaps the paradigm that we've had, the paradigm that violent offenders should always be isolated from, uh, from culture and world. And, and church is a place where we don't have to deal with violent offenders. And you know it, that, that could be a paradigm that, that somebody had that might have been challenged in that mission. But the tricky part of being receptive and honest. And this is what the prophets did. It's exactly what the prophets did. Is they looked at the world that we were in. And they, they, they described that world. And they began to tell people. Kind of with the power of Yahweh behind them. How are we faithful to God's covenant. In this ever changing world. So they looked at stuff. Like we looked at last week. They looked at the rise of Assyria. And figured out what does that mean. When Jonah was told to go and save Assyria, what did he figure out really fast? Like, wait a minute. If I get these folks on God's team, they look like they have the wherewithal to punish us. And I look at our world, Judah, Israel, we need to be punished. We're not being faithful. He ran away because he was like, I can kind of see what God's doing here. So this is what prophets do. Now, the tricky thing is this world that we live in is always changing. You can't take a photo of it and say, oh, this is what the need is. This is what's happening. Here's the cutting edge of discourse. Here's the issue that we need to be on top of. Um, So let me ask you this question. As a community, we've been in Durham, in in basically downtown Durham from the very beginning uh, for 10 years. is how has this community changed in 10 years in terms of some of its needs or some of its realities? I'll give you one easy one. This is a silly one. But we, as a part of forming Emmaus Way, one of the things we like to do is walk the loop around downtown Durham, usually about 5 or 5.30 at night. And we used to meet at a restaurant and end at a restaurant and have dinner. Now, if you were going to do that, there was only one choice. There was only one open restaurant, I think, in the downtown loop. And it was Joe and Joe's Cafe, which is now Bull McCabe's. Had a big open room and a kind of a bar on one side. It wasn't, it wasn't like what it is now. So if you're going to have like, hey, let's get food in the loop. Well, that meant let's have a burger at Joe and Joe's because uh, that was really the option. Uh, that's changed, obviously. Another example of the way our community has changed or its needs have changed in 10 years. 
began meeting, there was no music. And and uh, you know, that that has changed a lot in our our relationship with artists is made up as different. Yeah, and, and even though we thought we would be deeply artistically engaged, our mind was on kind of patronage, not so much of, of local artists. And that changed. That the first year, somebody said, you know, that's actually needed in Durham and Chapel Hill is space for artists to play and for musicians to be received, particularly it was musicians at first. And so that was a, yeah, that was a really big change. Tim, you're, you're talking about this community. You yeah. have to know the kids. Yeah, a lot more kids now than there were at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Different. I mean, we, our demographic has definitely changed. Yeah, and I look at Durham at large, and you can have a conversation now about Durham as a highly culturally successful, affluent community. I mean, like, I give you, my kids went to school at Durham School of the Arts. The first time they drove through, sorry, Phil and Susan, through your neighborhood, they were a little nervous. <laughs> and this is horribly ironic, given our house. They, they, they didn't see any kind of, like, value in those homes. <laughs> like, who would live here? I mean, it's like in a town. It's in a city. And these houses, they look kind of old. You know, I mean, like a really nice community ought to look, I mean, like from a really nice community, I look like Metamont or something like that, right? You know, and so there wasn't like a language of, of a sense of beauty in and around the city. Uh, Jenny Nicholson laughs because it, at IBM, uh, you know, Jenny, we all know Jenny loves food and there's a few things she likes more than like hosting a business dinner. And, and 10 years ago, she couldn't get colleagues to come to downtown Durham to eat, right? Because they feared for their safety. So anything west of the Angus barn meant likely death for them. And, and, so, and we used to joke as we went out to dinner after church, like, hey, here we are in downtown Durham and no one has been attacked and we're already paying the bill. Now that's a really different environment, right? But we didn't have a conversation going on then about the perhaps that maybe there's two Durham's going on. There's fabulous growth and wealth and cultural development, but maybe it's not impacting everyone in Durham. Um, that would have been uh, that that wouldn't have been a big conversation ten years ago. So now we think about things like development and uh, living and home buying and all those things, and we have to ask the question: Who's getting thrown out um, if I live here? Um, when, when we were looking for locations, there were a lot of locations. Um, almost every place that you like to eat or drink, we may have looked at as a possible church location because they were empty. So our context has changed. Now, let me invoke attention here. Is the two impulses that I'm talking about that I see both rooted in hospitality. The impulse towards safety, being received, sanctuary... And then the impulse toward mission, perhaps taking risks, changing things, making things based on a vision of what we think God's kingdom might look like on this earth. Those two things rub against each other, don't they? Safety 
and the honesty of mission and missional change. Can you give me an example of maybe either how those two things rub against each other or maybe how that tension has impacted you? The need to be safe, the need to be received, and the need to be, or the call perhaps, to be involved in change in this world. Because we don't all agree on what change needs to happen, right? Can you give me an example of that? Maybe how those things are in tension or how it's impacted you personally. I think one tension is that um, if you're too safe, you're complacent, right? So I think the tension is that safety in some way takes away kind of challenging and honesty and maybe seeing Right, and I mean, it happens. I mean, it happens in church all the time. I'm not talking about just a man's way. You come in, and you're like, you've had the kind of week where your mom has told you that you you don't look very good, or you've uh, you've your somebody you work with says you're less than less than competent at something, or you've been treated unjustly, or you've not been received in a certain way, and you come into this space and you you want a hug, you want a friendly face. You want to, see, and we've talked about this many times. One of the best things a church can do for people is uh, to give them space to breathe and relax and rest rather than being asked to do something all the time. So you need that. But on the other hand, as Susan points out, is the world is so entrenched in the way that it does things that to change things means that. You have to agitate or disturb. That's a Durham can word. Is how can we, that, this must have been used in planning the, the big meeting in, in a week and a half. How can we agitate the people who are there? Agitate them to action or agitate people who are sitting on interest, like land that could be used for affordable housing? How do we agitate them to make them think, maybe you need to give this land for affordable housing rather than sitting on it? So those things work against each other, don't they? I won't keep prodding for this, but but do you have an example of where you felt that tension? Jim. Jim, um, so I uh, was involved in uh, working with Antioch Baptist Church, and Denise, who used to be here, was, was also working with Antioch and Michael Page and, and the others. And it's, um, it's a church, on, an African-American church on Holloway Street. And Holloway Street, you all know that, the, the, uh, import, the importance of Holloway Street probably better than I do, but it, it was at that time known as like a, a, a boundary line between different gangs within that neighborhood, those neighborhoods around there. So there's a lot of violence uh, in the area, but that's where I would go to meetings, and the, uh, the folks at Antioch were amongst the most hospitable, warm people that I had worked with, and I, I always felt completely safe when I was with them. But then I would go, then I would leave, and I found my car had been broken into, and my stereo was stolen, and, um, and Michael Page was running down the street looking for it. <laughs> Grabbing people he knew and asking if they had seen you know, a particular radio. And, um, you know, and that, even that was hospitality, that, that he would be doing that. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we, part of the life of Emmaus Way, looking back at the good old days, we actually met for three or four months in that neighborhood. And it was really interesting. It changed the group of people, like the five to ten people that were thinking about starting Emmaus Way, that they almost changed themselves out over there. Because there were some people that were ecstatic about being in northeast central Durham, and there were some people who didn't want to drive into northeast central Durham. So it was... It created a little bit of challenge for us. Maybe an example, and then I'm going to ask you about how you resolve the tension. Um, I'll give you an old example. Um, when we first started, um, there were a group of people who were involved with partners and neighbors of ours that were very involved in um, civil disobedience against capital punishment. And North Carolina was deeply, I mean, was neck deep in, in, uh, in capital punishment at that time. There was no moratorium that was going on. And so, like, here we were meeting in the loft above Francesca's. And on a given Sunday night, somebody might stand up and say, hey, we're going to go protest at Central Prison. And what that involves is we're going to sing some songs, light some candles. They may ask us to move, and, and some of us won't move. And because we won't move, we'll get arrested. Who wants to come on? Who wants to join in? You know, and, and there'd be like a couple people in the room like, I have been waiting for a church that does that. I, I got to go do that. And then I remember one of the first people that um, I think she had been with us maybe two months, very young, um, right out of college, came up and said, you know, my dad... Um, who was kind of a lobbyist and had, had said to me, has said to me all through college, because this was a very mission-focused person, don't do something now that you're going to have to explain when you're running for office 15 years from now. And now my church is telling me to go get arrested. And then the next person came up and said, um, when did we pass a policy on capital punishment? I missed the meeting. I, I, you know, I know we were hanging out, and it was a great show on Sunday night. It was HBO. Missed church a couple weeks. When did the capital punishment sermon and altar call occur such that we're all against it? Um, and, and that would kind of is the old paradigm of church, right? If somebody says it from up front, then everybody agrees with that, right? So if I make a pro-choice or a pro-life comment or something like that, it's very clear that Behind a closed door, SK has made a decision, and we're all going to, you know, that's, the, that's what you're used to, to hearing, right? And so we were left with this interesting thing that people's missional life would work against some people's sense of, of safety. And some people's sense of safety would work against some people's missional life. So how do you resolve that tension? Because you know, like Susan said so well tonight, those two things are always going to be pushing against each other. And we have two values that constantly push against each other. And I would suggest that as we go forward for the next 10 years, how we push on those things will really impact who we are as a community. And, and, the, and the illustration I'm making tonight is the things that we push against will be different. There's certain things that would be really controversial uh, 20 years ago that aren't now. Um, for example, I, I don't think we're going to come to blows with each other over women's suffrage. I mean, did any, anybody think? Probably not, right? But that would have like been really ugly uh, church circa when? 1912 or something like that? Sure. So how do we resolve this tension? 
And I have a, just a, a quick point I want to make on this and then a, an assignment for you. Let's start with the assignment first. Um, look back at Acts 8. I was reading that this week and I was reading it and reading it, and then I hit geek level of reading it. I mean, I probably I, I don't even want to share how many articles and thoughts and things that I've read on Acts 8 this week. And somewhere about yesterday, I realized this is way bigger than a dialogue. It, it, but it's one that this story will mess you up in a beautiful way. It's a story that will help you think about this issue of, of hospitality. How are we receptive? How, are we, how do we do the honesty that we need to do that leads to social change? So here are some, here's a little bit of assignment for you on this. Is look at the text from a lens. I mean, it's the story of this, this Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized by Philip on a road going south, almost off the mount south. Um, who is being received here? And as you wrestle with that, and we're going to talk about this in our dialogues, what is the identity particularly of the person that's the traveler here, the Ethiopian eunuch? Who is that person? And think of some categories. This person has perhaps ambiguous sexuality. They don't fit in the male-female binary. They have unique racial possibilities from a potentially a phenotype color body type of issue but remember people didn't talk about race 2000 years ago like we do now with phenotype but this person um, looks different Um, they also are part of a different nation and that would have been a really big part of the conversation related to race in biblical times. Um, they, they are also having come from the temple. So there's amb- it's ambiguous as to whether is this person a Gentile? Is it a Jew? Is it a God-fearer? Is it a Jewish proselyte? It's difficult to replace this person religiously in the story. So who is being received Second question that we're going to deal with is there's conversions that happen in this story. And who is being converted in the story? And certainly think about this from the lens of Philip the Apostle. Are there ways that Philip is converting in this story? Is there ways that he is having that missional honesty that changes his paradigm? And then also, this is a deeply theological text. The leading speaker is not God, but God is present. And the question would be, where does God fit into this encounter between the Ethiopian eunuch, the traveler, Philip the apostle, and God? So I'm going to encourage you to jump into that story. Um, Let me give you one nugget before Skylar leads us to confession on this, is that just to be thinking about this tension that we live out between sanctuary uh, and, and between mission is one of the things that we've tried to do here is to stay away from a consensus based and a socially conservative base of mission. Now, when I say socially conservative, divorce yourself from any thought of theological conservatism. What I mean by that is just the idea that generally keeping things the way they are is the best thing to do. We didn't want to do that. 
We also realized as we looked at the world around us that if you were waiting for a consensus to be able to do something, then you would never do something until it didn't need to be done anymore. Right, So some church passed the women's suffrage uh, uh, platform of 1954, and it just wasn't the great timing. There was other things happening in 1954 that might have been interesting to talk about, but the women's suffrage mission plan of 1954 wasn't that interesting at that point. Right, So we wanted to not work on just total consensus and not on keeping things the same way, but how do you do that? How do you do that? And one of the things that we did, I won't go into the background on this, but we've used very aggressively a language of binding and loosing, which, is, which comes from John Howard Yoder. And I can give you the background on that later. Uh, Dan Rhodes could give you uh, 500 days of lecture without taking a break on this. This is his area of expertise. But one of the things that we wanted to do, loosing meaning resolving obligation, taking obligations away. And binding and holding people to an obligation. Here's kind of how we think about this. And and as we talk about this going forward, we'll see if this changes any. But one of the things that we wanted to do was loose people, free them up to live out their discipleship in the location that they're in. Right? That's how we talked about the capital punishment thing. Is we said, no, we didn't pass a policy that everybody that comes to Emmaus Way is opposed to capital punishment. And if you're not, you should feel a little weird about yourself. But what we did say is that when Skylar stood up and invited you to go to central prison with her, she just complimented you. She just said, this is how my discipleship works its way out. And I think so highly of you, I would like for you to join me, if you'd like to, in the way that I act out my discipleship. And, and people said, oh, we were used to doing it differently. That's a compliment. Skylar thinks so highly about me that she wants me to come with her to do something that's deeply important to her and perhaps consider why it's so important to her. So one of the things we did is we loosed each other to our discipleship in the place that we are. Um, and that looks different for everybody because what's beautiful here is everybody's coming, everybody's merged into this place from really different spaces. But then the other thing that we did is we understood that we needed to bind each other to some things as well. We needed to hold each other to some things. And so we as a community bound each other to a set of values. And if you were to read our minister's liturgy, the kind of the first six statements on things like simplicity and prayer and mission and a whole range of things, I won't cite them all, um, those were the things that we were bounding our, binding ourselves to. We were binding ourselves to values. So let's say Gail Thomas is my favorite silly illustration, gets really committed to dogfighting. And she just thinks this is the way to make budget. This is the fun thing we should do. And you people over here are probably not involved in dogfighting. You should get into it. Gail will hook you up. Um, um, if, if Gail decides to make that announcement next week, one of the things that we would do is we'd say, Gail, we've bound ourselves to some values. Um, do those values resonate with dogfighting as an essential practice? Uh, now, Gail's a lot smarter than me. She probably would have a really good answer to that if she were indeed a dogfighting kind of person. But I do want to assure you that Gail is not a dogfighting kind of person. <laughs> but so this is how we work this out. We loosed ourselves to, to 
practicing discipleship in the place that we are. It's what gives us the diversity we have between orthodoxy and people who paint outside of orthodoxy in their lives. But we also created a set of values so that we, people weren't joining to something that was a nothing. So, and then the third thing, and here's the tricky thing. I think you have to do all three of these at the same time or it gets ugly. Loosing, binding, and then a commitment as a church to always being converted in vision and values, always learning, always reading the text from divine hospitality. What that means is reading the Bible from a perspective of what is the voice of God in my life? And usually for me, that's a voice of love, challenge, and sometimes deep perception beyond what I see about myself. So you could see that if we just loosed each other to practice the way that you want to practice, then Gail might turn us into a dogfighting church, which would probably be bad. Um, if, we, if we just bound ourselves to a set of values, it, it, we might not be very receptive to people who might think about things in a different way or might come at something that's important from a different set of values. And if we just stayed the way we bound and loosed ourselves 10 years ago or five years ago, then I would suggest that we wouldn't have the impulse to listen. We wouldn't have the impulse to pray fearfully and wonderfully about what God is doing with and among us. So I want to parse out this reading of Acts 8, but today I didn't feel like I could do the, the amount of justice that I want to do to it. But, uh, but let's think about that, that way that we put it out there. And then let's think about where does that take us? So read the text, read it from the perspective of the eunuch, uh, who has some really unique positionalities, um, read it from the perspective of Philip and read it from the perspective of God. And we'll continue talking about how can we make Emmaus way safer? How can we make it more missional? And how can we be more dynamically engaged as listeners? Skylar, lead us in confession and absolution tonight. into your heart, baby. Tell me what do you see? Is it red or black? If I give you my love, will you give it back? I can't see straight. If you
Tell me what do you see? Is it red or black? If I give you my love, will you give it When I was uh, a kid, I think as a lot of kids are, I was like super into space. That was like my favorite thing. Maybe dinosaurs first and then space. But I was very, very interested in space. And this sort of childhood obsession when I was maybe in middle school sort of turned into this very specific scientific impulse that I began to cultivate such that I think when I was like 11 or 12, I asked my parents if I could get a subscription to Scientific American and started reading the articles. <laughs> um, I read Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. I read all of these books about space that I could find. 
And I remember very specifically when I was about 14 or 15, we got a new band director at my high school, and he was a composer, and he was writing music and talking about music that I had never heard of. And so I asked him, like, well, I don't know some of the things you're talking about. Like, why don't you give me some CDs or tell me what CDs to buy so I can hear some of the stuff that you're talking about? So he burned me a couple of CDs of, like, contemporary classical music. And I remember, like, maybe halfway through the second CD, I had this sort of sinking feeling of, like, oh, crap, I don't think I'm interested in space anymore. (laughs) Like... (laughs) I think I might have to devote a large portion of my life to this thing that I'm hearing right now. And I think a lot of us have stories like that. And I think what we see in the story tonight is that those moments capture, obviously, excitement. And they they determine the course of our lives. But there's a tremendous amount of fear and trepidation that can happen in moments like that as well. Uh, There's loss. There's uncertainty. Um, there's a conversion experience that we have in those moments. And we have to reckon with a world that looks different than the world that we looked at before. Um, Suzanne, which we sang as as the prep song, is one of my favorite songs in the entire sort of pop music canon. And in particular, those lines in that final stanza, uh, she shows you where to look among the garbage and the flowers. There are heroes in the seaweed, There are children in the morning. They are leaning out for love, and they will lean that way forever while Suzanne holds the mirror. To me, that moment of hearing that super weird (laughs) classical music was a moment of looking down at the seaweed, looking down at the garbage that was all around me all the time that I had simply never looked at until someone sort of pointed my head that direction. And to me, if there's anything compelling that we can be in this community for each other, if there's anything compelling that you have all been for me in this community, it's people who constantly remind me to look in unexpected or unfamiliar places for the kind of work that's happening, um, the, the places where God's kingdom is breaking and around us. And to me, that's the beauty of the table every week, that we have this incredibly simple but incredibly communal practice where not only do we get to see a material practice of the kingdom of God, but we get to point each other to the places where that is happening in our own lives and the places where it might be happening for us and we don't even know it. Uh, and, and we rely on each other to point us to those, those piles of garbage and flowers in our own lives that maybe we haven't sorted through. Uh, here at Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, which means all of you are welcome to come, to break bread for each other, saying the body of Christ broken for you, to pour wine and juice for each other, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. Please be invited to the table. <laughs>